You're listening to ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Advances in Women's Health, sponsored in part by Eli Lilly. Your host is Dr. Lisa Mazzullo, Assistant Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Northwestern University Medical School, the Feinberg School of Medicine. Polycystic ovarian syndrome, or PCOS, affects 5 to 8% of reproductive-aged women and has a significant medical impact on their fertility and overall health. Can we meet the challenge the PCOS offers as medical professionals? Welcome to Advances in Women's Health. I am joined by Dr. Sam Thatcher, MD-PhD, and Director of the Center for Applied Reproductive Science and an expert in reproductive endocrinology who is also the author of the best-selling patient advocacy book on PCOS, The Hidden Epidemic. Dr. Thatcher, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for the invitation. So we're going to be speaking about polycystic ovarian syndrome today, and as we know, that is a challenge on so many levels to both patients and physicians who care for them. Why do you think PCOS is so important to think about? PCOS is the most common endocrinopathy of women. And first off, it's, it's an insult to all things feminine. Women are not supposed to have a stray hair anywhere on their body. They're all supposed to be of ideal weight, at least by insurance company standards, and they're all supposed to have a baby in tow. And when we're dealing with hirsutism, infertility, and obesity, this is a major short-term risk, as well as having long-term risk of heart disease and obesity. Absolutely. I think we can agree that PCOS affects people on both a psychological level as well as a medical level as well as a fertility level. And I think it hits so many things that are important. So in seeing patients with some of the things you're mentioning, hyperandrogenism, infertility or anovulatory cycles, how do you think these patients can be diagnosed best? I think that the primary part of the diagnosis is a clinical diagnosis. When someone walks into the room, most of the time you know whether or not they have PCOS. But I believe that the first part of the diagnosis is a very careful history because many things come up in the patient's family history that will point toward PCOS. PCOS is inherited so that we know that there'll be some family members that have diabetes, heart disease, obesity, infertility, and sometimes that is one of the first keys to the diagnosis is their past history. And obviously, not all patients who walk in that have a weight problem and maybe a hair problem are PCOS, but most of the patients who come in that have cycles over 35 days have PCOS when they walk through the front door, and that's about all the diagnostic criteria that is needed. Don't you think that people are almost over-diagnosing PCOS at this time when they see people with just a few of these criteria? I don't think there's such a thing as over-diagnosing PCOS. In fact, I believe that PCOS diagnosis should be one of inclusion, not exclusion. What's the problem of telling a patient she has PCOS if she has something that she can then focus on, possibly direct therapy? because the metabolic consequences of PCOS are so profound to identify those at an early stage can have a fairly major effect on their long-term health. You know, my concern, and it's a very good point that you make, and I think if you raise your bar in evaluation, patients will get more thorough care, and I think that's certainly important. But I worry about labeling patients and impacting the psychosocial aspects of somebody having PCOS. I think it's just the opposite. I think it gives them a disorder to focus on. It gives them a point to learn something about. The problem I have is is that all PCOS patients do not have metabolic syndrome. Metabolic syndrome having a principal aspect of insulin resistance or having heart disease risk, what's happening is I'm afraid that insurance carriers are now looking at PCOS 
as an independent predictor of later health risk, which it doesn't necessarily have to be. So in terms of the patient, I think it's very important for them to have something that they can say that they can hang their hat on. It explains a whole magnitude, multitude of problems that they've had in the past in one four-letter diagnosis. Do you think there's a beginning and an end to PCOS? Do you think it works with the cycle or a hormonal shift? Certainly, and the research studies have shown that there are interuterine programming of the hypothalamic pituitary ovarian axis and maybe even metabolic programming that may predispose toward PCOS. But the most important issue is, is to recognize that PCOS is inherited, especially through insulin resistance and maybe different types of enzymatic, uh, yet-to-be-identified abnormalities in ovarian and particularly interfollicular metabolism. Do you feel that when a patient comes into your office for the general practitioner or general OBGYN and you see a woman who's possibly overweight, her suit, having alopecia, that clinical history is enough or are there laboratory values that you think are worthwhile looking at as well? There's certainly not one laboratory test that should be done. Androgen assays to look for hyperandrogenemia are terribly inaccurate, and I'm not sure they add a, a tremendous amount to our overall diagnosis because there's a high level of false positives, or false negatives anyway. False positives are not very frequent. Mm-hmm. Most patients with any sort of serious hyperandrogenemia and any patient who has virilization, that's very different from the PCOS patient. I don't think that the typical reproductive hormones are nearly so important as looking at metabolic issues, and I believe that the sine qua non of PCOS is to do a glucose tolerance test with insulin levels. Fasting levels alone are not enough, and especially fasting glucose levels, because these patients are not diabetic, although in a reproductive endocrine practice, we now are seeing about one patient a month who's an undiagnosed diabetes. As an aside, 50% of diabetics are thought not to be diagnosed right now. They're walking around with a diagnosis of diabetes, which is not made. So I think that the glucose tolerance test is very, very important, and the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology has said that the most important test for women, then the one that's least often performed is a lipid profile. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to Advances in Women's Health on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Lisa Mazzullo, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Sam Thatcher, and we're discussing the challenges of diagnosis and treatment for women who are suffering with PCOS. Dr. Thatcher, we were just talking about lab values and the underutilization, maybe, of lipid profiling and insulin evaluations for patients because of the long-term health risks. Is there any other laboratory values or other diagnostic testing that you think we should evaluate in these patients? Presently, the most common diagnostic criteria are known as the Rotterdam criteria, and there are three components of that. One of them is, is menstrual cycle irregularity. The second is some evidence of hyperandrogenism, whether it's clinical by hair growth or acne or by elevated androgen levels, and the third by ultrasound scan. I've mentioned that androgen levels are notoriously bad. Also, it's difficult sometimes to tell about hyperandrogenemia because of the different constitutional variations between groups of women. Some women will have quite significant hirsutism with minimal elevation in androgens, and some women with quite significant hyperandrogenemia have very little excessive hair growth or acne. Do you think the androgen levels, though, can increase your concerns or open your scope for more lipid profile information? No, I think it's the other way around, is that lipids will, and especially the LDL, is it will open our thoughts into looking at more deeply into the reproductive hormones. 
The third part of the criteria is an ultrasound scan, and perhaps it's because I'm a reproductive endocrinologist or even an anatomist by my earlier training, but I believe that ultrasound scans are essential in PCOS. The problem with it is is that I, I think I've never seen a hospital-based ultrasound scan or a radiologist make the diagnosis of PCOS. They may say there's an increased number of small follicular cysts, but they don't say much more. But these patients, because of the association, it gives a chance to look at the functionality of the uterine overgrowth and even overt hyperplasia is relatively common. It's said that every woman under age 35 with uterine cancer has PCOS, endometrial cancer. Because it's obviously very rare otherwise. It's otherwise very rare. So an ultrasound scan to look at the lining of the uterus in patients that are having irregular cycles, to look at the ovaries, and ultrasound scan, while it's not very sensitive, it is very specific in determining the polycystic ovary pattern. You know, it's interesting. I think that in our institution at Northwestern, we're very blessed by ultrasound people who are astute at this, but I agree they do not like to make the diagnosis on the ultrasound, and so depending on the patient's cycle, they use that often as a physiological excuse for the multifollicular ovarian picture. And I think we have to be careful in interpreting that. I believe that virtually all intercontestants should be done on cycle day two or three, and even an ultrasound scan during the menstrual pattern, because the PCO pattern is not going to change particularly, that being around 10 follicle cysts, less than 10 millimeters. And that should be consistent throughout the cycle. However, in mid-cycle, obviously, there will be a cyst on the ovary associated with a preovulatory follicle. The endometrium should not be very thick except at mid-cycle or in the luteal phase. So an early follicular phase ultrasound scan that shows an abnormal endometrial development I think is really fairly important. Do you think that there's anything particularly special that we should be paying attention to as these patients become postmenopausal? We can say we almost know nothing about the postmenopausal PCOS patient or even how PCOS patients go through menopause. There's some evidence that testosterone levels lower as the ovary starts to fail and cycles even start to normalize. There's also excellent evidence that the PCOS patient has a very low risk of osteoporosis. On the other hand is is that what happens is that the polycystic ovary syndrome is replaced by metabolic syndrome. A critical point that seems to blur this whole distinction about PCOS is that PCOS is not metabolic syndrome, and metabolic syndrome is not PCOS, but there's a very strong co-association. So we should look for metabolic syndrome, hyperinsulinemia, hypertension, lipid abnormalities, in all of our PCOS patients, but maybe we should also look for PCOS in all the patients who come in presenting with metabolic syndrome. Do you think there's more than one type of PCOS? I think there are probably at least several phenotypes. I don't know whether there's a half dozen. One of the most important ones is the fat versus thin or the overweight or weight problem versus the non-weight problem PCOS patient. It's my personal opinion is is that the overweight patient is more likely to be hyperinsulinemic and insulin resistant, while the thinner patient is more likely to have disorders of the hypothalamic pituitary ovarian axis. In infertility therapy, the thinner patient may be a little bit more difficult to treat than the overweight patient. Yes, and why do you think that is? I think it has to do with maybe two different compounding issues. It may be that there is a two-step hit on the ovary, one coming from the hyperinsulinemia and second from the underlying polycystic changes or whatever causes uh, polycystic ovary itself. We know that 
one of the, the earlier definitions of PCOS is that you exclude all other causes, meaning that PCOS, we don't have a, an understanding of what its basic origin is. We now know that insulin is one of the causes and the, the ovary will become polycystic under the influence of insulin. But insulin is not required for an ovary to become polycystic. A special thanks to our guest, Dr. Sam Thatcher, who's been discussing the challenges of diagnosis and medical management of the polycystic ovarian syndrome patient. You've been listening to Advances in Women's Health on ReachMD XM157. For questions or comments, complete program information, and on-demand podcasts, please visit us at ReachMD.com. Thank you and have a nice day. Thank you for listening to Advances in Women's Health. Sponsored in part by Eli Lilly, with your host, Dr. Lisa Mazzullo. For more details on the interviews and conversations in this week's show, or to download the segment, please go to reachmd.com forward slash women's health.